0: Requires high-speed internet-connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on direct TV Terms and restrictions apply.
1: Welcome back to the Wide Ride Podcast. I'm Manny Navarro, Miami Hurricanes beat writer for The Athletic. It is Thursday, April 21st. Close to 7 p.m. Joined once again by Carlos Ledo of the MIA All Day Podcast for tonight's episode. Carlos, I was going to share a story with you about what happened to me at the spring game. Can I tell you it? Go right ahead, man. It's your show. So um, I'm standing there trying to see, you know, after Mario's done talking to everybody after the spring game. And I'm trying to see, all right, are there any players? Are there any parents? Is there anybody around that I can grab to talk to? And he recruits. And all of a sudden I hear, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 feet away, somebody calling my name. And I'm like, somebody calling me like I hear Manny. But who who the hell is that? I keep looking. I keep looking. And there's a kid standing there with a uh, black marker in his hand and a giant Hurricanes football. And I walk over and I said, I said, do you need something? Something happened? You need me to get a player for you? He says, no, no, no. I want to take a picture with you and have you sign my football. And I said, wow, are you serious? And he's like, no, yeah, 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 yeah. And him and his dad, his dad brought out the phone. We we took a, a selfie and I autographed the football and I walked away. And I thought to myself, holy crap, there's some poor child out there that really thinks I know what the hell I'm talking about.
2: Yeah, man. You know what? I think it is. I think he, he thought you were really like the actor that played Sully in Monsters, Inc. That's and, probably it. And he probably thinks I'm Mike Wazowski. And that's totally cool. Like I'll sign an autograph. to Mike Wazowski once. First time
1: in my life. I haven't told my wife the story because she'll roll her eyes and vomit. And, yeah. Yeah. And call me I, an idiot. But I had to share it with you because it was so awkward a situation. I've never had that happen before. I am no celebrity whatsoever. I've
2: heard rumors that back when you used to pitch in the Boys and Girls Club, they'd ask you for autographs after that, but not since you've been a journalist.
1: Not not since I've been a journalist, not since I've I've uh, been doing this for a long time from from a high school writer starting off way back in the day. But uh, that that was a first for me. And that's awesome, uh, man. No, it it was it was very nice. I was very happy to do it for the young man. I just I was totally stunned. I was totally like, wow, I said, we're, we're. I'm covering a spring game and people are asking me for my autograph with Mario Cristobal here. Who would have imagined? And then it hit me. You know what it was? What? I'm the only man anybody likes anymore.
2: I think you were the only man anybody liked. From the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> anyway,
1: man, uh, crazy uh, experience uh, at the spring game. But outside of that, uh, what impressed me the most, in all honesty, was nothing that I saw on the field because I, yeah. I can't sit here and say, hey, you know what? That was great. When we know there were a, I think, 15 or 16 guys out with injuries uh, or held out just because they wanted to be held out. And then another, I don't know, four or five more that are coming via the transfer portal. Like, I can't sit here and honestly give you a full assessment of what's going to happen position by position. I mean, I'll give you my thoughts, but like to sit there and take away something from the spring game of value, it's like. You can't. What what What's a value to me, and I wrote this for The Athletic, point blank. There were a lot of kids from all over the country who showed up this spring to see Mario Cristobal coach. And when they left on Saturday, a lot of them, a lot of the really good players that play high school football in this country had smile on their faces saying they want
2: to play for Miami. That was the most important thing that happened. That's the key right there, because if. Not even the schematics. Like, if you schematically, the game was so vanilla that Vanilla Ice would have looked at it and said, "Damn, that's pretty plain." Like, damn, they weren't. They're they're very vanilla. That's mm-hmm. that's that's more vanilla than me. But um, yeah, man, I I said it on my podcast, spring games are not for evaluation, right? And it's for various reasons. One of the first ones being that, like you said, there's a there's usually a bunch of guys out during the spring game because you're getting treatment or surgery or or rehab during that time period. Um, You're usually going to get transfers in, especially now in the era of the transfer portal, even more so. Um, As you know, we got some guys afterwards. Um, But on top of that, you know, you're not going to put out a whole lot during the spring game when it's nationally televised on the ACC network, which is available via ESPN. It's for your opponents to be able to use as a scouting tool. You've done your evaluation by the time you've gotten to the spring game, right? The coaches have seen it all in the reps and practice. They've had closed scrimmages. They know who these guys are. They put them under more intense pressure during those closed scrimmages and practices than they did during the spring game. Um, so for me, it's a showcase for the fans. It's for the fans that you do this game so they can come out, they could support, they could feel good, get a little taste of what's to come in the fall. And especially now with the coaching change to get excited, even more excited about what's to come. Um like you said, to me, the biggest impact that I got from the spring game was not what happened on the field. It's what I heard and what I've heard leading up to the game, and then it was confirmed during the game when I watched the telecast on the ACC network where former players are talking about, yeah, things are different. You know, the, the, the standard has changed. The attitude has changed. The, the aggressiveness, the, the violence with which we practice with um, has changed. It's, it's taken it up to, to a different level And we're getting back to that old Miami standard where it's either you fit in or you get out. And I like that.
1: And and there's going to be some guys getting out here in the days and weeks ahead because there's just not enough scholarships for all of them. Right. I mean, you could take, um, you know, transfers in. I think you can get plus seven uh, to the 25. You know, if you had seven guys transfer out, which Miami has, you can sign up to seven, you know, to sort of make up for that loss. You can sign up to 32 guys. Uh, in this last cycle, but the point is you still got to stay under 85. You can't have more than 85 scholarship players on your roster. And heading into the spring with the guys that were supposed to arrive in the summertime, uh, the high school recruits and other transfers like Daryl Porter Jr., um, they were going to be over 85. So that number was already needed to be decreased. Um, and, and now uh, you, it's only going to be more because you're, you're adding more, more guys here through the transfer portal. I mean, Mitchell Lagude. Uh, who I just wrote a story about for The Athletic, uh, the defensive end from UCLA. Uh, I, look, by the time this hits the airwaves tomorrow, Friday, when Mike Zimmerman edits and posts, uh, people are going to be anticipating the Caleb Johnson announcement. Well, guess what? I mean, odds are I would say 99.9% sure that Caleb Johnson is coming to Miami. I spoke to Caleb. I spoke to uh, Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell quoted him in my story saying uh, he's going to have to fade Uh, his boy, his his former roommate from UCLA, if he doesn't come to Miami. Well, uh, Caleb went to Texas this week where he had previously been played in three games a few years ago before going to UCLA. And and he went back to Texas essentially I think to just kind of hang out with his homies. Uh, He pretty much was locked in after he visited Miami. So um, that's going to be another starter. You have Akeem Mesidor, the defensive lineman who you watched on tape and we can uh, talk about him a little bit, Carlos, but You know, you have him, uh, you got Porter, you got four power five starters from other schools that have come in. They're going to be a part of this defense. So when you sit here and you evaluate things like pass rush, or you evaluate things like the linebacker play and how they're still too slow and yada, 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 um, you, you you can't take away anything from this spring game and say, I know for sure they're going to be good at this, or I know for sure they're going to be bad at this because so much of this roster is going to change. And I think it's going to change for the better. And ultimately, OK, the guys who do stick around, they're going to be coached better than the previous staff. So overall, they're going to be a better team this fall.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think when you when you talk about, you know, the things that we can learn from this spring game, I think one of the things that aside from being a showcase for the fans, I think it's a showcase for the guys that are going to hit the portal. I think a lot of guys wanted to put out the best tape they could as a last chance effort to go out there and show other programs. This is what I can do. Um, you know, because I'm probably going to be making a move. And I think, you know, these two last additions with um, uh, the guy from West Virginia and Caleb Johnson, Mesador and Johnson, I think are are going to be very impactful. I think Mesador, from what I saw on tape, you know, I watched the, uh, the Oklahoma game and I watched the Oklahoma State game just focusing in on him. And uh, those are probably the best, the two best offensive lines in the Big 12 last year. Um, they did a good job handling him, but he still made plays. And I think the thing that stuck out to me was his motor and his athleticism. The kid doesn't stop. Like you will see a quick screen being thrown to one side of the field and he will come all the way across and try and make that play. And often does get into the pile before the play is dead. And he'll just keep fighting that offensive lineman until he gets to the quarterback, whether he gets your sack or not. He finishes every play. He plays to the whistle, which is something you want. You want that high motor on a guy from the defensive line. And I think he uses his hands very well. So when he gets to attack the offensive line and, and he gets into a hand fight, he generally wins that. The only time they were stopping him is if he was, you know, his the one thing I would say is he needs to play with better leverage. So he tends to play a little higher, a little too low sometimes. And when he does that is when he gets into trouble or when they double team him. Uh, so he needs to get a little bit stronger also. But aside from that, if he's one-on-one and it's equal leverage and he's got a hand fight, he's going to win that nine out of ten times. And his athleticism allows him to be used across the defensive line. So West Virginia used him in what you call one technique, which is almost like a nose guard shaded to one side of the, the center. They also use him at three technique, which is shaded to one side of the outside shade on the guard. They use him in a four technique, which is basically inside shade or a four eye inside shade on a tackle outside of the tackle in a pass rush situation. So he's been all over the defensive line. He's versatile in that sense. And he's listed at 272. Now I imagine under Aaron Feld didn't get him to 80 to 285 before the season starts. He's going to be, sort of that Jared Harrison Hunt three technique that can move around a little bit, not only just play inside, but also maybe play on the edge. We need a run stopping, a run stopping edge out there. And you could play him and Lichtenstein on the edges to really solidify it and run situations along with two additional defense tackles on the inside, like a Leonard Taylor and Jared Harrison Hunt, or maybe Jordan Miller if you want a run stopper. So there's, there's more versatility now on the defensive line. Thanks to this guy and Mitchell Gude. I saw a little bit of him today against UC against USC and he's got a great get-off off the ball. He's, he's quick off the ball, which I noticed right away. He's a little lean, and I think they'll build his body over the summer, but he looks like he's got a frame that he could really build out, which would be great. And I think before it's all said and done, him and Jafari Harvey will probably be about the same in that 270, 275 range, and they will be explosive defensive, defensive ends coming off the edge. Um, I liked what I saw from him. They used him a little too more too much on the inside at UCLA. When you saw him get kicked out to the outside, on past situations, on third and longs, he was explosive. And I can't wait to see that when he gets here.
1: Yeah, I think the front seven has obviously been a huge focus of Mario and, and the staff, you know, just trying to add more bodies because they know you, you don't have outside of Leonard Taylor. You don't have an elite sort of personality or talent up front. You just don't. I mean, Wesley Bessaint going to be a good linebacker down the road, but he's still 200 and whatever, five, 210 pounds. Um so you know the, the development of this defense and getting it to where Mario wanted to be is going to take some time. But the more bodies you have, the more depth you have, the better you're sort of prepared for your situation. And 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 the reality is that Miami wasn't a very good team on defense last year, and it wasn't just because Manny Diaz had guys out of position or or linebackers weren't even in the picture. Uh, sometimes when when you when you looked at, at plays. A lot of it just had to do with these guys not knowing what to do and yep. being smart enough to execute the, some of the concepts and things Manny wanted to run and the missed tackles, all of that, that, that to me was, I mean, you want to say what looked good on the field. First of all, they weren't tackling, right? They were kind of thudding in this scrimmage. They really weren't uh, bringing guys to the ground, the grounds consistently. That said, you can see that there's a better understanding of tackle concepts and where guys have to be. And that is a, is a welcome change. I know it sounds like a boring topic, but it's a welcome change from what we saw a year ago. Um, Fundamentally the blocking that I saw on the offensive line. um, You saw some of the combo blocks. You saw the first team offensive line, the guys that we've told you are solid guys protect Tyler Van Dyke. Well, outside of that, you know, did they move that? Were they dominant up front of the line? Of description? No, even the kid who squats 800 pounds, Logan Sagapolo. I mean, there were there were plays he was getting pushed backwards. It wasn't like he was just moving the line forward. And that's why they're still looking for help uh at those positions. And, and then at receiver, you know, you lose Charleston Rambo, you lose a Mike Harley. and Charleston Rambo was really good last year. Yeah, And that's not easy. Thing to just replace. I mean, think about where Miami's receivers were before he got here, right? We were complaining about the receiver position. Now you got to replace him because he's gone. Um, you know, I think Frank Ladson has tremendous size. He probably has tremendous ability. But as I said in the press box, that pass in the back of the end zone that he didn't catch, you know, that's something that Reggie Wayne or Michael Irvin or some great University of Miami receiver catches. That's something KJ Osborne catches. I mean, it, it's the point is it's done, right? It's executed. Um, so yes, Miami's still looking at receiver. They're still looking at linebacker. They're still looking at offensive tackle. If it and it, and it all really comes down to one thing, Carlos. If they can get an elite player to hop in the portal, they'll take them. That's why this kid from Arizona State, Eric Gentry, he's a uh, was a freshman All American this past season, forty five tackles, five tackles for loss on three hundred forty one snaps fourth best linebacker in the Pac-12 last season, 6'6", 200 pounds. Um, that's why a guy like him, Miami, calls right away when his name pops in. And and just for our listeners to know, May 1st is the deadline, okay, for when you have to be in the portal if you're going to transfer to another school and play in the 2022 season. If May 1st passes and you're still at your other school and you want to transfer it, that's great, but you're not going to play <laughs> Twenty twenty two. That's the rule the NCAA put in place. So that's pretty much cut and dry. Um, As I mentioned earlier, Caleb Johnson, he's going to announce his decision tomorrow. I was told by somebody earlier tonight that that's probably going to be the only addition from this weekend. Okay, that's sort of eminent. I know there's rumors out there of this person and that person and who they're looking at. They're going to have a visitor here. They have a defensive lineman that's going to be here this weekend from Maryland. A, a kid from in-state, who from from actually from the Panhandle, from the Florida State area. Big-bodied kid. I forget what his name is now. I wrote it down in a, in a in a blurb somewhere. But there's going to be guys that are going to come by here, meet with coaches, show their bodies, <laughs> and talk football. Well, that and, sounded a little dirty there. And and but that's essentially what they're doing. They're coming down to get measured and weighed and 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 examined by the coaches. I want to see what this guy looks like. How big is he really? You know, right? Um, that's what all that comes down to. And it's going to happen for the foreseeable weeks to come. And th- the transfer portal is going to heat up. There's going to be more departures. As I said, a long time ago, I said, everybody's, oh, they're done right in January or February, right? No, Mario said they were going to be busy. They're still going to be busy. It's still going to happen. And and by the way, they're going to lose guys. So um, yep.
2: the next few weeks are going to be interesting to watch, Um yeah, let me, let me get back to the point you made about the uh, the defense. I think, you know, one of the things you're seeing, you know, Mario obviously concentrating on the front seven and on the offensive line, I think defensively what you're going to see is they have not gone after a large defensive tackle um, to beef up that defensive line. I don't think they're going to get anybody in this, in this transfer season to do that. So he's going to go into this season and utilize what he has. And what does he have on the defensive line right now? He's got a bunch of guys that are in that 270 to light three range right? Mostly in that 270, 290 range, 305 maybe with Leonard Taylor pushing it, Jordan Miller a little heavier, but he's going to use that athleticism, right? So he's going to use those defensive linemen up front to get to the ball quickly, be responsible in their gas, be disciplined and get to the ball as quickly as they can, and then use the secondary guys that at the second level, either linebackers or defensive backs, to get to the ball even quicker and provide support in that secondary uh tackle mold, essentially. So we're going to pursue... And get to the ball and get gang tackling involved, which we haven't had here in a long time. Which is one of the things that the Hurricanes did really well in their heyday was use their speed, get to the ball carrier, and even though you're undersized, your defense is so fast that you swarm the ball and they can't get anything done. And I think you're going to see a lot of that. I think you're going to see the defensive line be moved in terms of you know how they move their fronts, how they stunt, uh, how they slant, how they stem before the ball is snapped. I think you're going to see the linebackers have their speed used when they get these guys in here. I think like Caleb Johnson if anybody else has added, if not Keontre Smith, use the advantages they have to sort of overtake their weaknesses, which is their size. And I think uh, their secondary is big for a secondary and their physical, which will help them in the long run in terms of that secondary support when it comes up to pursuit and making tackles. The offensive line, I think, is going to get a lot of support from Josh Gaddis wanting to use multiple tight ends uh, more than they have here in the past, which we saw in the spring game. We saw, guys lined up in the backfield as tight ends that were lined up as fullbacks along with a tight end on the line of scrimmage. So you've got that extra oomph on that offensive line to run lead and power and gap plays and pin and pull plays where they're leading through and, and just having guys ISO on linebackers and letting the running backs make a play and find the gap. So I think that's going to be a big advantage and a help to the offensive line who already is a really good uh, pass-blocking offensive line. And I think under Alex Miraball, it's going to be even better. The one thing I'll add about uh, the quarterbacks during the spring game, I thought – TVD looked good. He missed a couple throws. I think he tends to still fastball a little too much with the balls underneath. Uh, he needs to take some off of it because what ends up happening is because he has such a strong arm, when he fastballs it on crossing routes, he, his ball tends to sail. And we've seen that. And also when he hits guys in the hands, it's so forceful that it's hard to come down with as you're moving across the field. So he's got to learn how to throw with touch underneath, which he does a good job of throwing on deep balls. Um, I think Jake Garcia did a really good job throwing underneath and accurately. I think his thing is he needs to be able to take chances and throw the ball down the field, which he hasn't shown enough of, I think, over the last couple couple springs. And I think uh, TVD tends to hold the ball a little too long trying to hit that deep shot. I think his thing is his arm is so strong that he waits for a receiver to break open a little bit and then meets him with the ball rather than having him rather than throwing him open and leading him down the field because of his arm. He could just meet him with the ball immediately. Um, So I think one of the great things about I also saw from TVD was his ability to learn how to have some pocket presence and know when to tuck and go and pick up the yardage uh, when there's nothing there. Instead of starting to, you know, roam around with the ball separated from his body and creating some danger in that sense. So, you know, I think there's there's progressions in guys. It's little things that you can note during the spring game. And I think we'll see a lot of progression come the fall. Looking for an assist with your credit card,
0: but can't get a hold of anyone? Get live TV and streaming apps together without a satellite. Visit directtv.com requires high-speed internet connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on direct TV terms and restrictions apply.
1: A lot of good information there, Carlos. I was going to, I'm doing this ask me anything on Reddit now in 45 minutes uh, for for these Canes fans. And they've got a lot of questions. So I started answering some of them because I said, I'm not going to sit here and answer them all until 11 o'clock at night. I had a bunch of them in there, but one of them, you know, was what were your major takeaways from the spring game and what's your over under for eight and a half wins this season. So I kind of broke it up into little sections. You you touched on some of this. I know some of it may repeat some of your thoughts, but this is what I wrote for quarterback. I tried to do this from a big picture perspective, okay? Not from what I saw, but more of a big picture. Tyler Van Dyke, he hasn't stopped getting better. That's the most important thing. Jake Garcia promised he's sticking around. He's got the NIL money to prove it from John Ruiz. That's a great secondary story, right? I mean, you, you need to have your quarterback in place when TVD leaves. And I thought Ja'Curie Brown didn't look out of place. He looks more than capable being no. a starter in yeah. 2024. And that was from that was from the practices. Um, running back, and you can interject whenever you want, but running back, you finish camp with two healthy scholarship backs, okay? Cody Brown left via the transfer portal. Uh, we don't have any clue right now who's going to start against Bethune Cookman. We all have theories, right? We could be, um, you know, Don Chaney, could be Jalen Knighton. Travante citizen. I know this. I know the coaching staff, the way that they talk about this kid. It's like he's the second coming of Jesus. And so once he learns his blocking schemes, I mean, at some point this season, he could be the guy who's really the lead back when Miami's trying to win meaningful games. Um, I thought that Franklin Henry Parrish looked good. Um, They look like nice complementary backs. Um, And I like the way Josh Gaddis used his backs in the passing game. Uh, I think the combo blocking we saw was great. Um, it's all new and different and better than what I saw the last couple of years. And, and I
2: think this. going to your point there about the running backs, I think there's going to be, because they have so many and because they all have each sort of unique skill sets, I think there's opportunities for all of them to get on the field and have a role on the team. So obviously with that Franklin, you're going to use him as more of a short yardage back, sort of that heavy back, that pounder that you could still at the same time play action to and dump it off to him in the flat. Cause you saw him in the spring game, catch a couple balls and look good doing so. I think Henry Parrish is sort of your Swiss Army knife. He could be like your your uh, your sort of change of pace back. You know, if somebody needs a blow, give him a couple carries. Use him on third down, certain longs as your third down back to check it down to. I think it'd be a great thing to see with him and Jalen Knighton on third down situations in the backfield together, split next to uh, Tyler Van Dyke, and then have linebackers have to deal with those two, right? So you're going to have a tight end and those two backs. Now you got to stay heavy in terms of your defensive personnel, and you got to match those two guys with a linebacker. And it's over because either one of those guys are going to beat you in the passing game. Um, and I think, uh, you know, once Don Chaney gets back, if he's healthy, to me, you know, barring what Trevante Citizen can bring, he's the most talented back on the team, but he's got to stay healthy. we've got to see what he comes back as. If not, then that opens the door for Citizen. And if he can sort of step in there, learn things quickly enough, then he could be sort of the lead back. But I don't think there's going to be one guy that gets 20 to 25 carries. I think it's going to be a few guys that get anywhere between five and 15 carries.
1: And I think it's going to be a lot more carries than people saw last year. I think that's oh, yeah. the whole point of this offense. Uh, there will be dinking and dunking and occasional shots downfield. Obviously, we didn't see it in the spring game because they're not going to sit there and, sh- and show you every deep pass. Um, but, you know, I think the, the elements of throwing the ball to the to the tight end out of the backfield, um, throwing the ball to the running back out of the backfield, that is 1,000% Josh Gaddis's offense. Yeah. He, do, he did that at Michigan. And, and 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 I think the overarching sentiment that I want to just express is this is by design. Mario right. doesn't want his defense on the field until he can trust it. So this is about keeping the other team off the field. And you don't, you know, running, hurry up, trying to score as many points as you can. Yes, I think when Miami's defense gets to the point where they can be trusted, you play that way. But right now, Mario looks at that front seven and he says, What? we're not good enough to, to, to play yep. this hurry up. And, and he doesn't want to do that. He's a traditional guy anyway. Nick Saban, that's what they did at Alabama before they got Tua and, and started going bananas. I mean, like, they, they they played that conservative style until they felt comfortable on both sides of the ball.
2: And it's not necessarily conservative. It's, it's a different style than when other people are playing. So, number one, that's going to be more difficult to prepare for, right? Because you don't see a lot of teams in college football nowadays play with multiple tight ends, use that gap scheme, that pin and pull stuff, And come downhill at you in the running game and then wait to take to pick their moments to take their shots downfield. You see that hurry up, like you said, lots of vertical passing game, lots of zone read, lots of quick bubbles and things like that. And you're ready to defend that week in, week out because you see it all the time. So when you get this kind of change up, you have like a week to prepare, less than a week, really, it's going to be difficult to go against, especially when you're playing against a team. If they're the way if if Mario gets them to where they want to be, that's going to be extremely physical because it's not only the scheme. It's, you know, damn, now every play I got to go hat to hat with this guy and bang and bang and bang for four quarters. You're going to get tired. You're going to get sick of that shit, especially if you don't have bodies rotating in and out. And that's yep. the other advantage of the defensive line is when you got that many bodies coming at you fresh and they're just coming at you like wild dogs every play because nobody's tired, that makes up for the lack in size, right? So I think the other thing is just because I think fans before they get all pissy because you know how the Canes fans, you know, you say something, They take it to heart, and then they go all wild. Just because they're going to run the ball more and because they're going to use more tight ends does not mean that they're not going to be explosive, right? I think what's going to end up happening is because you run the ball more and because you're using the tight ends more and because you're being more physical, you're going to be more efficient with your explosive plays. You don't have to throw it deep on every play because when you do, you're going to connect on more than you did in the past because of your ability to suck in the defense force him to commit more guys to the line of scrimmage and get more one-on-one routes. And you saw that even in the spring game, Josh Gattis was getting guys open on crossing routes, on deep routes. Sometimes TVD would miss the read. Sometimes he'd miss the pass. But even in vanilla concepts, he's getting guys open vertically because he's sucking that defense in to try and commit to the run. And I think that's going to be huge. So I think Mario's vision for the offense is, I think what we is, to be physical, to pound them, to try and gain a physical, to impose their will on the opponent, and beat them down to the point where they can't go anymore, and when they get them on the ropes to take advantage and be explosive on the offensive side.
1: And if he does that, then then Miami's definitely going to win 10, 11 games and, and be in, where they want to be, which is the ACC championship game, competing on, on the big stage. Um, all right, uh, as far as the offensive line, okay, Jalen Rivers was at left tackle, second team left tackle. Somebody asked me, well, why? Why do you do that? Well, because you don't want him in the scrum, first of all, right? You don't want anybody rolling up on him and hurting him. Second of all, he's a guy that could play there. In Miami, I think their biggest issue is finding out who do you start at right tackle, because you need to have somebody capable of holding the fort there. Jared Williams did a solid job last year. He's gone. And yes, DJ Scaife has played tackle before, but we all know. We all know that DJ Scaife's best position is inside a guard. So Miami essentially has four starters, right, established um, coming out of the spring. Zion Nelson, Ja'Kai Clark at center, DJ Scaife, uh, e- either right guard or right tackle, depending on what happens. And then Jalen Rivers, who you could put at left guard and solidify that that side to protect Tyler Van Dyke if you get a good right tackle or you put him on a right tackle and you go with, you know, Logan Sagapolo or Justice Olochoon or You know, John Campbell, who who was out this spring. So to me, that that is a storyline that remains to be decided in the fall, which we knew it would be anyway, because of the amount of guys that were out. And then plus, you know, the transfer portal guys that are getting in here. uh, Jonathan Dennis, a kid who's a former four star recruiter at South Dade High School, who was part of the, uh, you know, nine to 10 players that Mario has brought in. So, um, that'll be a, a, another saga. The other saga will be who's the number one receiver, right? We still don't know. Romelo Brinson has to get healthy. Um, and, and yes, he has the best chemistry with Xavier Restrepo, his slot receiver. But at some point, he's going to have to establish it with his outside receiver. And, and we'll see what happens in the fall with that. Um, and, and the tight ends, they're 1,000% going to be used a lot more. And they're going to be asked to block a lot more. And by the way, I like the depth behind them. I think Dominic Mamorelli is a blocker. Um, Khalil Brantley, um, those guys aren't pushovers. They're not bad no. players. Um, and yeah, I said that, on
2: my pod, that could be the best tight end group in the country.
1: It very well could be. Um, we'll see when, Eli- when um, Will Mallory gets back from his shoulder injury and-, and Elijah Royal really feels comfortable and looks comfortable in this office. But Lil Skinner, once he puts some more weight on him, he's 232 right now. If he gets to 250, he's um, going to be a problem. He's going to be a problem for a lot of people because he's just built like an elite tight end. Uh, he's got that elite body. He could be the best one. Um, defensively, um, the front line. You know, I mean, I, with Agude, Harvey, Chance Williams, Thomas Davis, Cyrus Moss, and and eventually this kid um, Mesidor, which we don't know. What, you know, how I think he's going to be more and 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 Moultrie, uh Well, those are the those you know those are going to be the, the, the tackles. But I think the five ends are Agude, Harvey, Williams, Davis, Thomas Davis, who's small and short, but blew past Zion Nelson for a sack that he wasn't credited for in the spring game. And then Cyrus Moss. I think those are your five edge rushers. Um, the sixth guy could potentially be Nigel Lee Kelly when he gets healthy, um, or it could be a guy like Mesador if they decide to push him outside a little bit and let him uh, r- rush from that from that side. We'll see. Uh, but th- I think you got six D tackles, Taylor, Jared Harrison, Hunt, who I learned I guess has an infection in his knee or something is what oh, what he had. Um, Jake Lichtenstein, who I thought played really well in the game, yeah. um, and then uh, Jordan Miller and Elijah Roberts. Those are the Elijah Roberts was hurt, but he'll be back and he was going to be part of this. So you got right now you got ten, eleven, you know, def- twelve essentially defensive linemen. Uh, it's just a matter of who's the best. Those those will be the starters, and then linebacker Caleb Johnson is going to come here and start at middle linebacker in front of. Wayman Steed and Corey Flagg. like he's not coming here for any other reason um, so to me that's that's that position will be sort of solved and then you know weak side you have Keontra Smith Gilbert Frierson, and Wesley Besaint. Um, I guess you could have Steed slide over there as well
2: you we could have Chase Smith once he gets back Chase
1: Smith who you know he missed all spring he's he's obviously another big body guy that they're excited about but you know again they're looking for help at that linebacker position and the secondary I'm not really worried about the secondary. Um, I, know, I think the
2: secondary has potential to be really, really good this year.
1: Yeah, and they're always only as good as their pass rush, right? But, but ultimately, um, the safeties, I mean, once James Williams, once Cam Kitchens comes back, James Williams will get a look in the box. So you, he might be somebody who, who plays in that sort of hybrid linebacker safety cornerback position. Um, and then, you know, but as far as corners, um, you know, Isaiah Dunson played well. Um, and I think DJ Ivy and, and couch and Marcus Clark, they had their moments in the spring game where they weren't, they were there in coverage tacori couch looks like a different guy. Confidence wise. Um, once Tyreek Stevenson, Daryl Porter get there, it's only going to get better. Uh, you're right. I think that's, that's their strength on defense right now.
2: Plus um, the freshmen that are coming in. So yeah.
1: Yeah. Plus the freshmen, which may not even end up playing except on special teams because the older guys that are here. So, and then you still got guys
2: like Brian Balaam, Keyshawn Washington, yeah, so uh, Jalen Harrell.
1: Yeah, I mean, some of these guys are going to hit the portal, Carlos. There's just no yeah. no other way about it. But um, I mean, I, I think they're in a, they're in a very good position. Somebody asked eight and a half wins total. I mean, the only, there's only three games in my mind that they could lose. Based honestly, on, if it's on under disparity,
2: if it's under nine, I'd be I'd be disappointed. I, I
1: think from a talent, what people other people have and are bringing back, like Pittsburgh. I've said this before. Pittsburgh's the only team in the division that can beat them in my mind um, to win the to win the division. And uh, the only two teams that that they'll be not favored against are Texas A&M and Clemson, and rightfully so, going on the road to those places is not going to be easy. Um, But neither of those programs have a bona fide starting quarterback either. So you have advantage there. So, I mean, you're in a position where, you know, things fall right and and, and these transfers come in and they fill the needs that you need and, and they play at a high level where you could have a really special first season for Mario Cristobal and and feel really good about your recruiting class and build the kind of momentum that this program needs to have to get to where it needs to be which is bringing in elite players not just a whole bunch of average guys with a sprinkle in of a few good ones. Yeah. Um, if you're going to, if you're going to catch Alabama and Ohio state and Georgia, you, you need to have the best players in the country come here. And, and they are, they showed up, they showed up to watch and they all showed up and, and said they were impressed. I didn't get any, it wasn't like anybody rolled their eyes at me, Carlos, you know me, I'm not going to bullshit you. Uh, I, I, when I talked to these kids, I was like, man, this kid's from Minnesota, this Jackson Howard kid, whose father was a second round pick played for Stanford. You know, he's looking at me with these googly eyes about just, just how much he loves the fact that Mario and the coaching staff are fighting over him. Like, is he going to play defensive end? Is he going to play tight end? Um, the Jonel uh, Aguero kid who, who was at IMG Academy last year is one of the top DBs in the country this year. Top 100 player back home in Massachusetts. He's, he's already talking about how this defense needs him. Kids that came to the to the spring game in the past, and I've only been around again since around 2017, 2018, uh, after going to go cover the heat. But the kids that came around, they didn't have those googly eyes, dude. Like, they, they weren't going yeah, you home. Know
2: when they're, and you know when they're blowing smoke up your ass, right? You know yeah. when they're just giving you the run, the, the run around just to g- get a quote in the pay. But a lot of these guys seemed genuinely interested, which to me is a huge step up. And I think, you know what, it's not, it's it, credit to Mario not only for the way he recruits, but I think putting this game at Dry Pink Stadium was a good idea. Because it's more impressive when you see that Drive Pink Stadium sold out, even though it's 25,000, 30,000 capacity, more or less, than having a half-filled hard rock, even though it's a rowdy crowd. And these guys looking around like, wow, is this what I'm going to play in front of every day? Well... And-
1: I will say, and, and the capacity I think is nineteen thousand in DRV, DRV Pink. I will say there were a lot of empty seats in in areas where TVs were not aiming their their angles. Um, you know, particularly in the really hot, uncovered, soul burn my skin now uh, seats sections. Um, I wonder really, why. Yeah, because soft Floridians are smart; they seek shade. So, um, <clears throat> so yeah. I mean, look. The overall point is. A lot of kids came by practice all spring. It wasn't just a spring game all spring. And there's a level of excitement that Mario has brought and it's real and sustained. And when the kids leave, it's not, well, you know, I had a good time, but I'm not really considering them. I really think Miami is in consideration versus the elite programs. Now he's got to win. He's got to win. Can't, you can't lose the teams. You, you should be, if he does, then this thing's gonna be right where it was before. So, yep. um, all right, we we did ask for mailbag questions, and I want to get to them um, on Twitter. And this was a couple of days ago, or maybe yesterday. I yeah, kept...
2: I, I've got one. Ask me. I, I didn't ask me anything. Also on Reddit recently. Uh huh. Um, I only asked one. They only got one question though. Was who the hell are you? <laughs> so I'll just skip that one. <laughs> all
1: right. This is from Kane Stealth on Twitter,
2: and it's related to nil.
1: <clears throat> excuse me, and I, hopefully Mike Zimmerman cuts that out, but
2: that's a remnant of the Rona.
1: Maybe. I don't know. I, mean, I think it might be for me running my mouth too much and it's dry, but
2: I don't know, but whatever you got in that Flanagan's cup is probably gonna help. Yeah. Um, This is NIL related. If an 18 to
1: 19 year old makes more money than you, do you still have to treat them like kids? Do we baby college athletes? They are adults, right? They should be able to handle tough criticism or am I wrong? I see a lot of kids, glo- a lot of kid gloves Dealing with the players, um, look, nil or no nil. Kids, were, kids that were eighteen or nineteen year, years old have been making money from adults for a long time playing college football. Um, does this mean we need to change the way we treat them? No, I, I, I think you're still dealing with young individuals who are going to make mistakes, who are going to um, need guidance and leadership more so than ever. I mean, we, we've seen the dynamic of the household and. How many, you know, divorce rates and how many kids don't come from houses where two parents are are, are are there mining things and keeping after these kids. So to me, you know, there's a lot of these guys that still have a lot to learn. And I, I mean, I'm not going to treat I mean, yes, they're adults, but but there's also a, a certain level, I think, of understanding that you need to have of the situation when it comes to them. I don't think NIL just absolves them. Of uh of uh you know being children. They're still children in my eyes.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's just because you make a paycheck doesn't make you an adult. Like uh it, it reminds me of this kid, uh Ryan's Toys. I think it was did your girls ever watch that on YouTube? Mm-hmm. This kid that was like six, seven years old, had a YouTube channel and making millions of dollars a year. Just because he made millions of dollars a year does not mean that you could treat him like a CEO, like it was Jeff Bezos, right? You can't ask the same questions, you can't hold them to the same level of responsibility. You've got to understand that these kids are still kids and they're growing. Now, do they have to be accountable for things that happen on the field? Yes, within reason. I think it's okay to be uh, inquisitive as to you know what happens on the field, what happens if they didn't make a play. But I don't think it's right, I think, for anybody to be critical of someone else to the point where it's looking to be demeaning and uh, embarrassing of the person, whether it's a professional or an amateur. I think if it's good-natured, and I think if criticism comes from a place uh, of wanting to improve the person and help them, then that could be you know, fruitful at any age. But I think if it comes from a, a place from within you that you're trying to drag a person down, regardless of age, level, um, you know, monetary circumstance, then it's not right regardless, right? I don't think, and because you, you don't go into a, a press conference in the NFL, the NBA and say, oh shit, this guy makes $30 million a year. I'm going to treat him more harsh than the guy who's at the end of the bench making minimum salary. This guy makes less money, so I'm going to treat him a little bit better. I think at the end of the day, you know, it's everybody's has, has to be accountable for their actions. But if we're talking about play on the field, I think it should just stick to play on the field and uh, not be a situation where you're trying to demean a person by asking questions and trying to make them look stupid or or drag them down for what they did.
1: Still kids. Um, <clears throat> this is from Canes fan Duke. Crystal Ballin um, Oregon's football facilities cost a reported $68 million to build with Miami's new football facilities in the works. How much money do you think Miami will spend on their new facilities? It's been reported. They're telling recruits. We will have the biggest and best in the country.
2: I think Oregon missed an opportunity. 68 million. You got to go 69. (laughs) I don't know how
1: much it's going to cost. And Dan Radakovich, Miami's athletic director met with us on zoom Wednesday uh, to discuss sort of a series of events, although he didn't really answer too many questions. I asked the facilities question, what, you know, where they are and sort of that uh, progression. The only thing they're working on right now is upgrading the locker rooms, um, you know, tearing down the old ones, putting in the new ones. Um, you know, that Carol Sofer indoor practice facility was built in 2018 and I know from talking to the staffers for months, we've been having these conversations, but essentially they, they, the, the jokes about the 70 yard field, they want to put that to sleep. They want to get that over and done with Mario, I think came here with the notion that that would be fixed. There would be a 120 yard field uh, with the end zones um, to, to be able to, you know, do a full practice in there and so forth. They're going to expand the weight rooms, make them bigger and better. Um, they're going to make changes as well to the, uh, Watts center, the basketball, um, you know, uh, weight rooms, conditioning rooms, all that kind of stuff, all that equipment. Um, I just wrote a story on USF for the athletic, um, on their, on being a wayward program, you know, from going to number two in the country in under Jim Levitt to three, three wins over the last two years with their new coach. And, you know, I know from talking to their athletic director that their indoor practice facility cost them twenty-two million, and I think it cost them three million to upgrade their locker rooms. Um, Miami's indoor practice facility cost forty million when it was built in twenty eighteen. So obviously, Miami's facilities are on another scale compared to the ones that USF is going to have open uh, here in Tampa. Um, in, 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 in August, um, Miami's spending more money on it, investing more money. So I don't know how much it's going to cost ultimately to, to finish everything. Dan Radakovich said he'll share all that information and, and fundraising information, et cetera, this summer when when they put it in front of the um, board of trustees and the community leaders of Miami you know, and see how much money they can raise. But my understanding is it's going to get done one way or the other. Uh, part of this investment in Mario Cristobal – Uh, And this entire program is to upgrade everything at Miami to put them on a championship level. Now, are they going to break the bank? Uh, I don't think so. Um, You know, maybe they borrow some money from John Ruiz, and he he puts his name on the complex um, to to to, you know cover some of those costs. But I think Miami, with all the momentum they have right now, the excitement from the fan base over Mario being here, they'll probably be able to raise that money or a lot of it pretty quickly. Yeah, I
2: got. I'm going to donate myself. I got five on it. You
1: got five on it. All right, good.
2: I'm but look, listen, I, I will say it's pretty fortuitous that once Mario came on board and Dan Randachowicz came on board uh, and they're looking to upgrade these facilities, that they're having a bounce in terms of performance with the basketball team, getting to the Elite Eight and the baseball team being ranked in the top five. So and now with the momentum that Mario's brought to the football program, I think now the time is right to hit up those donors, get that excitement and and have them turn over some money.
0: Requires high speed internet connected Gemini device and separate paid subscription to watch Netflix on direct TV terms and restrictions apply.
1: Um, yes. And it, look it, it, in the grand scheme of things here, every, everything that Miami needs to win. I, I, I don't think Mario Cristobal is going to be told no very often. So this is, this is going to end up being what it needs to be for even when Mario Cristobal leaves. I think, I think, you yeah. know, as long as they can win and fill that stadium, which by the way, I asked about season tickets uh, on Saturday I asked Rudy, I ran into him on the field and he said, he's going to get me the number, but he says they're on pace to sell more. He thinks they can sell over 50,000 season tickets. So we will see if they get there, but between that money, merchandise fundraising, um, they, they believe they're going to be able to cover their bills uh, for Mario, his staff and everybody else. um, all right, I'm going to steal a couple of these questions from the AMA, and then we're going to wrap this puppy up here, Carlos, because we, we've talked a lot already about this team. Um, all right, this is, this is a good one. Uh, you've seen all the greats. Who is your favorite player of all time, and what year was your favorite team?
2: All right, all right you start off because that's, that's your hard.
1: That's a hard one to answer. Um, I thought Kelvin asked this question. Um, he didn't. It was old soapy. And remember, Calvin is a new (laughs) soap.
2: Yeah, right. (laughs) I think Calvin's uh, undercover name is Old Lufa. Uh, All right.
1: This is a tough one for me because honestly, and I know this sounds really corny, but I don't even remember being a fan anymore. Like I'm 43 years old now. I had to turn off my, uh, my, my fan hat and become a quote unquote unbiased journalist when I was 17 years old. So from a rooting perspective, I, I always root for the game to end fast so I can get my job done. Um, win or lose, which mostly losses the last 20 years. Um, you know, that that's, it's been painful. It sucked to watch them struggle, but uh, you know, there's, there's also interesting teams and, and players. So I broke this down really by two facets. One, when I was a kid and I was able to watch as a fan and then, and then as a journalist, my relationships with the kids and whatnot. So to me, I have two favorite teams: the 1990 team that beat the crap out of Texas in the Cotton Bowl. I just the swagger, and then mm-hmm. the the '86 team which lost in the Fiesta Bowl with Vinny, and that was such a fun team to watch play as well. It sucked; the ending sucked. Maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but um, to me, those two teams. Um, represented Miami football for me in the purest of form. And and what many people, I think, in South Florida fell in love with was that renegade, we don't give a shit, we're going to beat you and stuff it up your you-know-what, and we're going to laugh. And that, to me, is Canes at its purest form. It's like cocaine. It's like the Canes in their purest cocaine form is those teams. And and it's just that's, that's the drug that everybody got intoxicated on.
2: Yeah, so for me, I mean, I, I, the greatest player, I can't really name one. That's that, that to me is the impossible question when it comes to the Hurricanes, and I think it's a beautiful thing that there's so many guys that were so great that it's hard to pick one guy that you feel is the greatest. So I think that's a position-by-position position kind of discussion, and we'll get, we won't we will get into that because that'll take too long. For me, my favorite team growing up was the 91-92 team, uh, the one that won the National Championship in 91 and then lost to Alabama in 92. Those teams, to me, where when I was really, you know, coming of age, getting into middle school, sixth grade, um, you know, being 43 like you, those teams were the ones I remember the most, most vividly, most passionately I had during that time period. You know, clippings from the Herald, pasted up on my wall, posters. Um, my favorite poster of all time was in my, uh, my reading teacher's classroom, my language arts teacher's classroom in middle school. He had the um, fast track football poster where it was, you know, Lamar Thomas, uh, Horace Copeland. Kevin Williams, and I think Daryl Spencer with Gino Toretta behind them, and they were on a track ready to take off, and he was behind them with the football. You know, that's those are the memories that I have that are most endearing to me for that, that time period. Those Hurricanes, came, teams to me, were the greatest in my mind in terms of what I felt. Now, of course, the 2000 and 2001 teams were very special because it brought us back, and I, and I f- think of those teams very fondly because of that, not only because they won the national championship in 2001, but that 2000 team, which got us to the precipice. I got us right to the brink and had guys like Reggie Wayne and Santana Moss and Dan Morgan and Damian Lewis guys that didn't get to win the championship, but were the foundation to get us to that, that point and Al Blades that didn't get that ring, but got us there in the end.
1: Um, I, I was going to answer this as a reporter as well. Um, as a reporter for the last one well, says 1995, 96 uh, being around those guys. Um, to me, the things that stick out of my mind are the relationships, being at Sean Taylor's draft party, um, you know, and seeing him and knowing his dad and his family and then the tragedy. Uh, Brian Potter being at his apartment a week before he was shot and killed in front of his apartment. Um, those two relationships for me as a reporter always will be engraved in my in my mind because I was there for the good times and, and, and sadly had to be there for the end. Um, and, and then, you know, two other guys I would mention, Duke Johnson, um, you know, who I got to know when he was his baby faced freshman at Miami, New Orleans, uh, who was just such an animal, was so exciting. You knew he was going to be a monster. You knew if you went to Miami, which that felt like a lock the whole time that he was going to be special. And of course, he leaves there right with every record pretty much. Um, and, and then Ja'Cory Harris, who was, uh, you know, to me, I thought he had a pretty good career at Miami. Uh, all things considered, um, you know, Ja'Cory, I still remember going to Miami Northwestern uh, when he was a no name junior. Nobody had ever heard of him. He's a tall, skinny kid sitting in the back, jumps in the back of my car. And he, he just starts saying, Mr. Navarro, I'm going to be a star. You watch. I'm going to be a star. And, you know, he didn't make it to the NFL. But, uh, you know, Ja'Cory was just a, a very sweet kid. Now he's, you know, a firefighter uh, emergency, uh, you know, technician type guy. And, and to me, the cool thing for me, when you talk about favorite players, it's really more favorite people. How many people I got to know covering this team, um, and their personalities and their stories, uh, things that I'll always treasure. and, And I'm very thankful to, to be on this beat doing so. Um, all right. So we went down memory lane, um, there are a couple of other questions in here. I don't know if I'm going to answer all of them, Carlos, because we, I got to do this thing in 15 minutes. Um, rapid
2: fire. Rapid fire. Let's get them out. Ra- get
1: them. Rapid fire. Um, here's here's a good one from what is your go-to order at Versailles? Uh, this is from Dolderer. Uh, very bad admission here, but I think I've eaten at Versailles once, Carlos, in my entire life. I'm more of a La Carreta,
2: Las Vegas, Cuban cuisine guy. I'm I am more of a uh, Latin American, Miami Lakes kind of guy.
1: I don't miss many meals. Ropa vieja, panizado and croqueta preparada. Those are my three go-to. My,
2: my go-to is going to La Ventanaita. Whenever I'm in that area, I, I generally don't eat at size, but if I stop at the window, I'll get a cafecito and two croquetas.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're talking to Cubans here. Um, What is the biggest difference between working for the Miami Herald and working for the athletic? You get paid um, more. I get paid a lot more one. and And number two, I don't have to report everything that everybody else reports that feels like and I, and I don't mean this is a criticism because everybody has to do their job. But I, there's something that that just destroys your heart when you're like, I'm writing and I'm writing all the same things that everybody else out here is writing because there is no individualism. I have come to appreciate individualism and trying to craft stories that are different from everybody else. Um You know, the late Juan Rodriguez, who covered the Marlins. He died, unfortunately, a few years ago from a brain tumor. But Juan and I go way back. He worked at the Sun Sentinel and then the Herald covered the Marlins together, as I mentioned. And one thing he told me the first day I jumped on the Marlins beat way back when when Hanley Ramirez and Dan were fighting and being dicks. um, One thing he told me was when they zig, you zag. And that lesson of being different in your reporting um, has always stuck with me. I've always tried to be different. You know, it's always easy to run there and, and do the big interview with everybody there. But when you end up writing, everybody can read that somewhere else. Try to stand out, try to be unique. And I think The Athletic allows me to do that. Um, my Kane's Confidential piece is sort of a perfect example of that, right? I got to talk to a bunch of anonymous people. I couldn't have done that for that. Um, so that's that's what I enjoy.
2: And the other thing, like Adam Sandler, uh, who brings on all his friends into his movies, yes, used to bring me and Kelvin up.
1: That's right. And I get to do this podcast, which is a lot more fun. Um, there's a basketball and baseball question. You want to go there? Yeah, let's do it. All right. This is a basketball question. What are your thoughts on the basketball program? Do you think the Elite Eight run will have a positive impact? What do you think the impact will be losing Chris Capoto for the head job at George Washington? All right. I, it was awesome. The Elite Eight run was great to watch, but I think it is more the outlier than what we're going to see happen on a regular basis. Go back. I understand the Adidas scandal affected Miami. I understand, you know, Jim Laranega had to deal with a lot of BS, but still didn't do a very good job recruiting for a couple of years there and not even using all the scholarships. Uh, Miami, uh, you know, went through a rough run. They basically had a really special team this year full of transfers. Caputo was a big part of it all. I know Jim Laranega just got extended, I think, through the year 2026, but um, I hope for his sake and the program's sake, they've got to get back to the tournament next year. Otherwise, I think they lose the momentum of what they did.
2: And I think like the football program uh, with Manny Diaz, I think being overly reliant on transfers is not the way to build a sustainable program. I think the foundation is going to have to be finding elite high school talent that's going to want to play for Miami and build that foundation and keep them at least two years to help this program grow. If you can keep them three, that's even better. I think you want to follow that Jay Wright model where you're, you're building something like they do at Villanova, um, where you're, you're usually having veteran teams year in and year out, getting through the tournament, getting to that final four, getting deep in the tournament because of the veterans that they have, knowing the system and they have the ability to play. Um, I think the, the other thing is, you know, gotten he doesn't have much time left, so you want to be able to find somebody that either you could target as the next person in line, sort of the coach in waiting, like they did at Duke, or you know have somebody in mind down the road where you want to fill that'll be consistent in terms of the ty- this type of style and and play that you want to have at Miami and establish sort of a brand. You want to establish your your sort of uh, you know identity as a basketball team. I think you look at Kentucky, you know it's going to be all out pressure all game long defensively, big guys, uh, long athletic. You look at, at Kansas, you're going to see guys, you're a team that's always going to want to play through the post, It's going to be tough defensively. You know, Jay Wright, that Villanova is always going to have guys that are about the same size, not too tall, but athletic, physical. They're going to play tough defense. Virginia is going to play that pack-the-line defense where they put everything in the paint, make you hit the outside shot. They're going to box out and rebound and give you one shot at the, at, at the hoop. And if you don't capitalize, they're going to turn it right back around and run their offense for 45 minutes and make you defend the entire shot clock and then get a good shot off and be efficient with it. So you want to build that sort of brand for your program. And I think ultimately one of the things where Miami has failed, and I think all the big programs down here in Florida have failed, is they haven't gotten enough of the in-state talent uh, recently over the last 10, 15 years that have been elite or at least close to elite. So they haven't gotten, and guys that could be borderline elite, maybe guys that could develop into something better, they haven't taken chances on them and built them within their program. They've looked out of state to try and build the program with other guys from New York and Massachusetts and other areas. And I think there's a lot of guys down here in South Florida that get overlooked that shouldn't because they feel as if this brand of basketball on here in South Florida and Florida in general is not good enough. Um, that is not, you know, to their liking for some reason. And I think they miss the boat on a lot of stuff. And then when you go to try and turn it around and recruit a guy like Vernon Carey, then they tell you, well, screw you. You've ignored everybody that I played with. Why am I going to go play for you? You don't have any South Florida guys on your team. Great. Point. So now you want me all right. I think you need to build that recruiting base and wall off the state to be able to build that sort of consistency.
1: All right. Uh, all, all good, really good points, Carlos. Um, this is the last one on baseball and then we'll wrap it up. What are your thoughts on the program? We saw the 14 game win streak come to an end this weekend. What do you think the ceiling is for this year's team? How do you feel about Gino Damari and the long-term outlook for the program? Uh, I'd answer it this way. I think Gina Damari has the hardest job of anybody at Miami because he doesn't have the full allotment of scholarships um, and the tuition at Miami is very pricey. It's much easier and cheaper to go to Florida, Florida State, the other state schools and get some of the funding that you need to play at Miami. So I think that challenge in itself is always going to be at the forefront of, of how do you keep this thing rolling and sustainable. Um, that said, look, they're 29 and eight after the win over Bethune Cookman. Um, and I saw baseball America, I think had them ranked, or projected to be the number two seed in the entire tournament behind Tennessee. And that was an article that just came out recently. Um, are they the second best program in the country? Look, they're 20 and four at home. They got really hot, got into the polls after they swept, um, North Carolina, by the way, that North Carolina team isn't even in the 64 team field anymore. Um, and they put themselves in a great position to host sweeping Virginia. Um, they've got five starters in the lineup batting over 300, an excellent closer, three pretty good starters. Um, they're probably a super regional team with a shot at Omaha. But I think it's still very early in the season to sit here and say they're, they're a lock for Omaha or the, number, the second best team in the country.
2: I think they need to get to Omaha. I think for Damari's sake. I think they need to ride this wave and be able to get into Omaha because it's been a while since they've been there, and they need to show that this program is back where it was. And I think of all the programs that NIL is going to benefit, I think baseball is going to be the one that benefits the most. Obviously, having NIL helps the football program because you can be able to recruit more elite talent. They're going to be able to compete with uh, other schools that have that big bag. But I think with the baseball program, NIL is even more critical because, like you said, you get to fill in the gaps of that tuition money That's much different than at Florida or Florida state or other state schools where guys can just basically fill it in with financial aid and they're fine and they have a full scholarship essentially. So this NIL money is very important because they can make up that tuition difference and still have some money in their pocket, um, which will help them land more elite recruits. And I think the other problem is Miami historically has gone after elite prospects um, in high school that eventually get drafted and then they miss out on them because they go to the major leagues as opposed to playing for uh, college, you know, playing for the University of Miami in college. And I think they need to do a better job of evaluating not only talent, but which kids are serious about going to play college baseball, as opposed to, you know, if I'm in the first five rounds, I'm out. So they've got to do a better job of that moving forward.
1: Carlos, thank you for doing this with me again. As always, a uh, great uh, wingman to come on. Make sure you listen to his podcast as well. That's the MIA All Day Podcast. Follow him on Twitter. At at a l l e d o
2: 1307 el ledo 1307. And speaking of your wingman, I will be your goose to your maverick any day,
1: appreciate it, brother, or
2: slider to iceman, whichever you prefer.
1: I'm gonna ask Kelvin the last time somebody asked him for his scholarship, I'm pretty sure it wasn't last Saturday. Nope, goodbye, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Peace.